Revive. All right. Welcome to Micro College. Um, today, our guest is Julie Shackelford. Um, Julie has been an instructor at the International People's College, which is a folk high school in Denmark. Um, and yeah, a number of exciting ideas to, to learn about there. Um, many new, I'm sure, things that people in our audience haven't heard of before. Um, but so welcome, Julie. Well, thank you, Jacob. It's great to be here. Cool. Um, our guests, um, we'd like to start off with a question um, about your, your background, but I would frame it this way. If you think back to when you were 20 years old, we're at the age of most of our students um, or roundabouts, where were you um, and what was, what was great about what you're doing then and what do you wish was different? All right, so 20 years ago, literally, uh, well, not quite, I would have been packing my bags um, on a uh, trip to Paris. Um, I was going to, I was studying at UWM in Milwaukee, and I was fascinated with French culture and French civilization, and so I was doing a study abroad for a month in Paris, um, you know, very uh, cleverly named uh, Summer in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, when I did go, and for the month of July, I loved it so much, I didn't leave. I stayed for a year um, and uh, lived in a bookstore for a while and um, actually studied for a bit and then decided that living and experiencing life in Paris was more um, uh, important in that time, uh, in that moment. And uh, yeah. Um, it was fantastic. I think, what would I have done differently? I don't know. Um, it was it completely changed my life. Um, it was the first time I'd lived abroad. Again, I have continued to do so for most of my adult life since then. Um, so it, yeah, it was a very pivotal moment in my life. So this was essentially a self-created gap gap program, essentially. Exactly right. So I had no intention of um, you know quitting school or anything like that. I had um, was only going to do it for a month. I had already paid the down payment on my apartment and, you know, and tuition for the next, for the fall term. And, and literally, actually, I came home because I had a return flight at the end of July. Um, I told my roommate I was moving out. I canceled school for a year. I did all those things. And within, I think, a week or two, I was back in Paris um, and working as an au pair and doing all sorts of odd, odd jobs and, and things like that. But um, yeah, so it was not uh, an intentional um, plan. It just kind of happened. I felt... Uh, from the moment that the plane landed in Paris that I was home. And I felt that as long as I continued to feel that way, I needed to explore that. And, and I have in different <laughs> ways. The home has changed uh, location um, over the years. So you've gone on to, to make a career as, a, as an anthropologist. Correct. right? And would you say, connect, can you connect that experience there to your, to your path as an anthropologist? Yeah, so um, so I studied, or I lived in France for a year, um, then went back to UWM for a year, um, and I was already studying anthropology at the time, um, but had been looking more at the Hispanic world, um, learning Spanish and that sort of thing, and so I switched after my year in Paris, and, um, and so f focused more on the Francophone world. So it's very kind of a roundabout way, uh, but during that, um, that time in Paris, I had a few experiences um, that were uh, very... Um, Hmm, what do I say? Like, uh, there was, um, for example, Islamophobia um, and um, prejudice towards people from the Middle East and North Africa, uh, which wasn't at all what I thought would draw my attention. Um, but so over that year, I kind of became aware of this. And of course, this is right after September 11th, mm -hmm. um, and these emotions are running high, both you know in America and, and beyond. 
Um, and so I started to think about it a bit more. And um, I went back to France. I lived in a very small town. I was teaching English um, mm -hmm. for another year. Um, and had some more experiences uh, while I was there. And I thought, you know, I love France. I love the, uh, you know, the culture and the language and, and everything about it. But I just felt it wasn't enough. And that was for me. Um, and I need to do something that was for more than just myself. Mm -hmm. So I went home and uh, I finished my degree. Um, and then I applied to do a master's uh, in Middle East studies. Wow. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> completely uh, switching fields again, uh, still anthropology, but now learning Arabic and learning and uh, teaching myself Arabic, actually, with the Rosetta Stone program. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then ended up doing a master's at the University of Chicago, uh -huh. uh, focusing on the anthropology of the Middle East. Uh, from that point on, I started to focus more and more on Syria, uh, which was seen as the safest country in the region. <laughs> and uh, you know, wow. So that I was different. From yeah, today. <laughs> right. Yeah. So uh, so initially, actually, I had planned to, um, for various reasons, uh, actually look at Iraq, but it was unsafe. So Syria was quote unquote the next best thing, and uh, safer, but culturally somewhat similar. And so I went uh, to Syria, um, and it was still during the, the peace time, and it was wonderful. Um, I met my husband during that time. I was doing um, kind of anthropology and archaeological work in the um, uh, desert city of Palmyra. Wow. And it was fantastic. I was working with the Bedouin and um, loving you know, the work that I was doing. And then, of course, the uprisings began in the Arab Spring. And uh, I happened to be in Damascus, the capital city, when it all happened. And the roads got closed and we couldn't leave. And so was spent most of that time in Damascus, went to Palmyra a few times. Uh, and then, um, yeah, uh, eventually had to leave the country because it just mm -hmm. simply got too dangerous. And, and then went to Denmark um, because my boyfriend at the time, now husband, is Danish. And uh, he... You know, we didn't really know what to do, uh, so we, we went there um, to kind of regroup and figure out what to do. And uh, there was a folk high school up the road called the International <laughs> People's College. And he said, I think you might like this place. <laughs> and he was right. Wow, so. fantastic segue there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that, that the story, you know, you know, you said about, you know, just the, the path of history that you got to have a front seat through there in the Middle mm. East and, and also in France there. It, it seems like an interesting segue to being involved with the, with the Folk High School. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, for many, many of our listeners, many, many Americans, this idea of a Folk High School is it's a set of words that don't necessarily fit together. Mm -hmm. um, so, so maybe before we go any farther, could you give your, your sense of what is that, what is that concept? What, what is a Folk High School? Um, well, folk high school, to me, um, it is something that is uniquely Danish and Nordic in tradition. Um, the folk, of course, means you can translate it directly and say, okay, that's the people. Um, and a high school, high school is kind of a higher education, you know, um, in Denmark for adults. Um, but that kind of loses the meaning, right? Um, a folk high school was really for the people. It was... Um, you know, it came about um, by the, the founder, NFS Kronvi, uh, who actually never had his own folk mm -hmm. high school, but he had, it was his idea. And Christian Kohl was also a big part of it. Um, and they really, it was a, a crazy time in Denmark and in Europe and the world. You know, there was all sorts of revolutions happening again. What years were these? So if we look at um, post um, French Revolution, so I think for Kronvi, mm -hmm. that was a very. Um, 
important because he was a young man and when it happened he remembers it um, and remembered it and he was very influenced by it um, and so in Denmark um, the constitution um, I think was 1849 that it went into effect mm -hmm. um, but 1848 was a huge year in Europe all around the world yeah, yeah exactly that, that's one of those watershed years of American history too the Seneca Falls Conference and um, Henry David Thoreau exactly. went out into the woods <laughs> exactly right I mean it's massive and so at that moment Denmark was shifting from this absolute government this absolute monarchy to um, a democracy you know and so the idea of a folk high school is it was truly for the the adults the people of this new fledgling nation to uh, well Denmark is an old nation but this new fledgling democracy to become part of it and mm -hmm. to be active in it and um, and so it's tied to this um, really you know kind of revolutionary spirit but a, a bloodless revolution right mm -hmm. um, and um, and just this sense of empowerment um, yeah that's really quite profound um, and really untranslatable uh, yeah. in many ways yeah yeah I think that that's the, this this word democracy mm -hmm. is, is 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 thrown around it is it's lost its currency in a lot of ways but mm -hmm. a, a democracy and I think this this story emphasizes it requires a people a mm -hmm. folk right to a demos right mm -hmm. in the Greek sense right mm -hmm. there, there needs to be a people who are ruling for, mm -hmm. in order for democracy to work and and that doesn't just come about Right, and so that Gomfi's insight mm -hmm. was 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 really profound in that sense. How do you take a group of peasants, people who are disconnected from each other, living in a particular place, and have a sense of yes, we are a people. We are we can we can rule. We can we can have shared uh, ownership, let's say, of this of this country, mm -hmm. and make decisions. I mean, you have to remember it's hard for us to comprehend, but in an absolute. Uh, monarchy. I mean, there's only one decision, one one voice that mattered, and that was the king. Right. Right. And so it didn't. It was irrelevant <laughs> what your thoughts were, your opinions were. And so many people, if they even formulated them, um, that was you know exceptional, right? And because there was no point, right? It wasn't mm -hmm. relevant to your day to day life. So just teaching, you know, and and fostering an, an environment where people could have opinions. Um, was exceptional, right? Yeah. Um, was revolutionary in its own right. Um, so historically, these are these are young adults from rural backgrounds in Denmark, um, and I guess before we get to the International People's College, which is is the modern manifestation of this, do you have a sense of in in those historical folk school folk high school contexts, what was going on there? What what was the what was the activity of the of the students? You could say of those schools. Um, well, it was a bit mixed. Um, I mean, I don't know precisely, um, you know, all the, the different uh, folk high schools, but I know Hoding uh, Folk High School, or Folk School, which was the first. Um, there was, uh, you know, manual labor involved, um, but also kind of more academic, you know, stimulation of the mind, stimulation of the body. Um, you know, they talk about the head, heart, hands nowadays, but kind of that, that holistic 24-hour person, um, this idea of, you know, um, that you aren't just your brain or, or just your hands, right? Yeah. You have to combine them all together and to be a full person. So is head, heart, and hands is part of the language of the folk high schools in Denmark today? It is, actually, That's, the Folk High School Association. So that that is, yeah, the one kind of well-known motto of Waldorf schools as mm -hmm. well. So that's that's an insight into human nature that's that's common, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Micro College is recorded in the broadcast studios of WDRT Viroqua, 91.9 FM, Driftless Community Radio, on Main Street in Viroqua, Wisconsin. Thanks to Jim and all the folks at WDRT for the support of Thoreau College and the Micro College podcast.
So you have this direct experience as an instructor mm -hmm. and uh, and a participant. Are you, were you living on the campus of the International People's College? No, we actually moved almost directly across the street. Okay. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're very very close. Um, and at the time, there was no um, you know place available. And but we basically lived there, yeah. <laughs> just slightly. <laughs> A little bit away. <laughs> so yeah, International People's College. Mm -hmm. Yeah, could you describe that to us? What 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 is it like? Yeah, so International People's College or IPC uh, was started actually 101 years ago um, by a man uh, Peter Manica. Uh, so they just had um, their hundredth jubilee. Uh, we actually oh. just celebrated in May uh, because of COVID and things. Um, mm -hmm. It should have. There was an internal celebration last October, and then a more kind of external um, celebration. Uh, in May, and, and basically it was started um, just after World War One, uh, where um, Peter Manica, who had um, was kind of <laughs> almost Quakerist in his um, his belief system, and had spent some time with the Quakers in in England, and uh -huh. also at Fearcroft College over there, uh, and he was very moved, and he really did not want to ever see what happened in, in the Great War ever happen again, and his idea was to basically take the Danish idea, um, which was also linked to nationalism and creating the mm -hmm. Danish person, right? Um, and that was also related to the relationship to Germany and, you know, that was a complex history there. Um, but, you know, creating the sense of Danishness. Um, but Peter Manica wanted to take it one step further and to create um, and really focus on humanity. And he felt that um, particularly working side by side, working for peace, didn't matter what language you spoke, it didn't matter which side of the war you were on. Um, he was adamant he wanted, you know, both Germans and Englishmen and people from those opposite sides to come together and work side by side um, and maybe, you know, take classes in the evening, whatever it was. Um, but, you know, do the dishes and, you know, dig the ditches and whatever. They actually built our, our lecture hall, uh -huh. um, uh, the students did. And, um, and through that, uh, through that fellowship, what they call failescape, um, which is kind of togetherness, um, it, we would create the solidarity and create this feeling of brotherhood or sisterhood and he real humanity. You wouldn't see, you know, um, a German. You wouldn't see a Russian. You would see a person. Uh, you wouldn't see a teacher, you wouldn't see a principal, you would see a person. And that was what he was trying to do. Um, and, you know, I think to a large degree he succeeded. You know, he was there for many years. Uh, I think he died in 1981 um, and then oh, wow. has been uh, succeeded by others. He wasn't principal the entire time. Um, he did retire earlier, but he was definitely a very vocal participant for many years afterwards. Well, just think of all the history that happened between the 1920s and 1980s. Exactly. <laughs> in yeah. Europe. It's, exactly. So um, and it, so it's continued um, over the years. Uh, I know in I think 1988 it was actually declared by the UN as a messenger of peace. Um, I think right. I think that was also the year we have. Um, there was a, a peace poll, and there's one in Madison as well. I mm -hmm. think they're all over the world now. Uh, May peace prevail on earth. Um, I think there's one here in Baroque, actually. Is there? Yep. <laughs> Interesting. Yep. I'll have to find it. I think it's actually right across the street. <laughs> 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 yeah, one block down. Oh my goodness! <laughs> from where we are here That's at the fantastic. studio of WDRT. Okay. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I mean, it was um, very much today. It's uh, considered a peace school um, and working towards active global citizenship. Um, and just, again, but still bringing people from all across the world uh, together. I think this last term we had students from 28 countries wow. uh, around the world um, living in community and residential living for six months. 
and uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah. <laughs> and Peace, yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> you know, and learning, you know, how to create democracy. Uh, you know, with regard to the student kitchen, and you know, all <laughs> these different things. Great. So let's get into those mm-hmm. nuts and bolts. Yeah. So I think yeah. when when uh, what I've found in in a and really my whole career as an educator in alternative education, experimental education. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's possible to get to talk about ideas and like the also the atmosphere around a place, but miss actually the, like some sense of what is actually life like in this place. So, mm. so maybe we could start, how many students are typically part of, uh, the, of the campus there at, at IPC? Um, generally around 100. Um, they've just expanded the campus a bit. So um, with the new facilities, I think 109 is the... The, uh-huh. the cap at this point. Um, and the yeah. students are all living on site there. Correct. Um, and it was actually decided, um, the option was discussed, should we expand the residential um, aspect and create more dormitories for the more students uh, to come? And they actually um, decided against that. They, they felt that 100, 110 was basically kind of the cap that you could create a community mm-hmm. where everyone would live together and could know each other by name. Uh, when you get beyond that, um, it becomes more difficult. Um, mm-hmm. So um, it, that was actually a conscious decision to limit the number of, of additional rooms they created. And how does that size compare to other folk high schools in Denmark, do you know? I think it's pretty average. Uh, I know there's some that are only around 60, um, some that are upwards to 200. Um, but then they also, I think those larger ones have kind of the, the long-term um, student residential areas and then maybe guests or short-term term courses that are happening at the same time. Um, so they're all very different. Um, in the Folk, Folk High School Act, um, there's certain kind of requirements by law that um, you must fulfill to be a Folk High School. But there's a lot of diversity within that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think each school can decide many things for themselves. Yeah. And so the you, you, you live across the street. Um, mm-hmm. Are most uh, um, faculty or other staff members living on, on site there or nearby? Um, most actually live on site, I would say. Um, if you are commute from Copenhagen or mm-hmm. from, again, the, the local city um, community area. Um, yeah. yeah, so and what is that setting like? What kind of a, is it in a rural place? Is it an urban place? Um, it's relatively uh, urban. Um, it's ca- actually kind of on the cusp. Uh, so it's in Elsinore, um, which if anyone is probably most familiar uh, <laughs> with the city is from Hamlet. Uh, so it's the location of the fictitious uh, <laughs> the story from Shakespeare. Uh, so there's Hamlet's castle. Kohlberg Castle is right there. It's a very kind of touristy area, but very sweet and um, kind of has this uh, um, old city center. And, and so we're kind of uh, just a, maybe a mile, mile and a half up the, the coast, up the hill um, uh, from there. And it, that's kind of right where the rural areas begin. Mm-hmm. So we're right kind of between those two, but easy to get to by train or car or anything like that. Um, so it's got a nice mix. It's not really in the middle of nowhere like some other folk high schools, mm-hmm. um, but it's not in the center of Copenhagen either. Um, so there's a few that actually are, I think one is in Copenhagen is not residential um, because there's simply no space um, mm-hmm. in the city. But the vast majority are rural. Um, a few are like us where they're kind of yeah. in smaller cities but on the outskirts. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point because as we've been exploring micro colleges and, and other you know, programs that we really see as peers here to Thoreau College, many of them are rural mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. even indeed in wilderness locations like mm-hmm. Deep Springs. Um, and you know, there's something about the community that's created mm-hmm. created by isolation or, or yeah. by, you know a, a close connection to the land in some place. So mm-hmm. it is a question that comes up: is is this possible? Does it work in a in a context where you've got a larger population? You've got you know, distractions, you could say, of, of, of culture and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
Is it is it the, it, when a student is there? Are they? Is it um, is it a bubble within the the wider community, or is it or or do do, do people connect with things outside? Um, it is absolutely a bubble. I mean, they talk about the IPC bubble, <laughs> <laughs> and they actually encourage students to get outside of it. So there's a program we started. Actually, I helped us to start. Again, after many decades um, of not happening, called uh, Dining with a Dane, um, where <laughs> students go out to a family. Um, actually, they think they grow in groups of two or three. And um, we kind of try to mix by region where they're from. So maybe a, someone from the Americas, someone from Europe or Africa, and someone from, the, from Asia. Uh, and then they spend an evening with the Danish family and have dinner. And, and then afterwards, uh, we invite all the families back uh, to the school, and we do performances. And, just have a very nice cozy time and so it's part of a kind of a um, IP, IPC Elsinore Exchange Club that I'm a part of um, so maybe we do, we do hikes and other things too but uh, yeah so I mean we do try to in integrate them a bit more into the community uh, but that really they are their own bubble as well you uh -huh. know um, the students um, some barely leave it um, but yeah <laughs> so how long are they typically there uh, the spring term is uh, six months, uh, and then the um, autumn, autumn term is five months. Um, if you take, uh, we have a Danish and English summer program that lasts three weeks, so it can extend the autumn program a bit longer, um, so they're more equal to each other um, if you take that. But So the autumn term is a bit more of a whirlwind uh, than the spring. Yeah. So And the students are, uh, as you mentioned, from all over the world, mm -hmm. 20, 30 countries around the world. Um, so the, the language of instruction is English, correct? Correct. And that's by law. We're the only foci school that is allowed to teach um, in English. All other foci schools must teach in Danish. And all the courses are in English. Correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's... Um, is there is there some sort of a, you know, a language kind of uh, test or evaluation, or how do people have... Um, you know, qualify, or maybe you could just say in a larger sense, how does how does one sign up to join the IPC? Um, you can just go to the website, um, yeah, International People's College IPC. I think uh, that uh, <laughs> I don't even know actually. <laughs> DK, I imagine. Um, so yeah, just go to the website and um, it's you can easily register um, and it has all the details there. Uh, you don't have to take a, an English exam mm -hmm. to to qualify, um, but they do if you. You know, need to take an English uh, class. They, you know, I think we have English one and English two, mm -hmm. and it's basically what you feel the level is that you you are. Um, and then for for other students, the, the classes are open to all, and that's a big part of the Folk High School. Is that um, I believe it's sixty percent, although it might be even higher than that. Um, but the a, a large percentage of the instruction must be of a general nature, um, by law. Uh, so you can't be specialized. Um, you can teach on different topics, but it has to somehow um, kind of relate to the universal uh, condition of humanity uh, mm. in some way so that people can identify with it. So for example, I teach a course on Middle East studies called mm -hmm. Approaching the Middle East. So yes, we do look at a lot of things uh, about the region, but we always try to bring it back to um, the larger, you know, mm -hmm. larger humanity, larger principles um, at play. So have, you, have you been an instructor at college university level here in the States? Uh, not in the U.S., um, but I did my Ph.D. at University College London, uh -huh. um, and so I did work uh, for a time um, just as a teaching assistant um, at, um, in the anthropology department there. Yeah. I mean, could you compare your experience teaching there or also, let's say, just being a student here in the States? Like, how, how, how are they similar or different to, to being uh, teaching a course or being a part of a course at, at, a, at a folk high school? 
Um, I think they're vastly different. Uh, if you think, if I think back to my time, for example, at UWM in Milwaukee, or even Madison, uh, where I studied Arabic for a while, um, classes tend to be a lot larger. Um, there's a, a, a hierarchy between the teacher who has the knowledge and the students who want to acquire it, and the you know the kind of banking model um, that. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on the name. Um, the the Brazilian um, um, Paulo Freire yeah. um, uh, talks about right this banking model of education. Pedagogy of the oppressed. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And so um, very much you know, and it's contractual, right? I pay a certain amount of money, mm -hmm. or I've taken out loans. I expect a certain um, quality product that will then you know get me a, the job that I want, mm -hmm. right? It has this idea, and that is not at all what a folk high school about. Um, so a folk high school has um, kind of three legs of the stool. And the first is education for life. Uh, so it's uh, it's not a time, uh, you know, between 18 and 21 or whatever it is, or 22 that you are there. It's at any time. I think our oldest student we had a few years back was 81. Um, <laughs> that's the oldest in recent memory. I'm sure there's been others, uh -huh. uh, perhaps older. Um, and so learning for life is um, a crucial. There's also um, uh, self-enlightenment. Uh, and so that is that it's for you. Uh, so you're not learning it to be a cog in someone else's machine. Um, you are learning because this is what you are interested in learning about. Um, and uh, yeah, and then the third is the um, active democratic participation, or in our case, um, active global citizenship. Um, and so that is really, you learn these things not just for you, um, but also for the well-being of others and for um, for a good quality of life in, in all aspects. Um, and so that university or college in, in the States and elsewhere, and traditional forms of education, that's not what they're about, actually. Right. At their core, that's not what they're about. That's not their purpose. Um, they are very much to keep a status quo of a certain lifestyle of a certain society, um, you know, in meeting the needs of certain industries and 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 this sort of thing, and and that has its place too. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, uh, it should always be looked at critically, I think, and make sure that you know if any tweaking needs to happen, that it can. Um, and traditional education has its place to maintain a certain. Um, yeah, culture and, and, and way of life. But um, the non-traditional forms, I think, kind of spice it up and they remind people that they have a, that learning is about so much more, right? And it can be a joy in itself. We are meant to learn. We are designed to learn. It's, I mean, we have our brains. We don't have claws. We don't have, you know, sharp teeth. We have brains and we have, um, you know, this thirst to just know more and, and be more. Um, and folk high schools, I think, just try to cultivate that and, and really um, embrace that and cherish and celebrate it. It's, it's so refreshing to hear yeah, those, those three, three legs of the stool mm -hmm. there are, are close, near and dear to, to the impulses here of Thoreau College, I would say. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, yeah, they address in, the, in different ways so many of the, the challenges and opportunities we are facing today as a country mm -hmm. and as a world. Um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, the the, the piece about um, about credentialing or you know learning for your for your own development is mm -hmm. something that I think I find is really challenging to explain to people, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? We we are so conditioned to think of of education as part of the economy, mm -hmm. right, or as part of yeah a system of of, of yeah why you know, I don't know what I want to do, so what how do I you know 
have a major and, and the idea being that higher education, education in general, has to do with qualification for a job of some mm -hmm. kind. Um, so can you characterize maybe students that you've worked with there at IPC? Why, why are they there? How do they decide to do it? And, and how does it fit into their larger journeys, if you can generalize about that at all? Yeah, I think students come and have come for all sorts of different reasons. I think initially they tended to be far more from a rural background um, who were interested in global studies, but also um, in development and agricultural development. That was a big part of the school and its founding. Um, and so they actually learn practical skills as well, um, but wanted to kind of broaden themselves in a very kind of traditional foci school way. Um, at, over the years, um, it's become more, there's been a larger percentage of students that come on the so-called gap year. Uh, so after high school or gymnasium or whatever it is in their country, that they um, you know, take a year off from their studies, oftentimes traveling around the world or at least around Europe, backpacking, that sort of thing, um, before settling down, quote unquote, and getting serious. Uh, so we do have quite a few of those, especially our European students. Um, I think that's very common, or American or Australian students. Um, Canadian students as well. Uh, but then I think uh, particularly from our um, kind of non-Western uh, countries, we have students who are very interested in actually um, whether it's starting their own um, foci school type institution back mm -hmm. home or really um, kind of seizing the, uh, the core values um, of the school, the mission of the school speaks to them um, and they want to, you know, um, um, do something similar, right? So they are really inspired and really wanting to be active global citizens, um, or at least, uh, you know, active citizens in their own communities mm -hmm. um, and take that knowledge back with them. Uh, so it's a mix, um, and it, you know, it, the levels change from term to term, yeah. um, but it's, yeah, it's nice. The Driftless Folk School, located in the beautiful rolling hills and valleys of southwest Wisconsin, is a community of lifelong learners dedicated to cultivating personal and cultural resilience through hands-on educational experiences. The Driftless Folk School offers classes in agriculture, land stewardship, natural history, folk arts and crafts, herbalism, wilderness skills, and more. For further information on the Driftless Folk School, visit us at driftlessfolkschool.org on the World Wide Web. So that uh, a question that we've been discussing here mm -hmm. on the podcast before um, that I think you're in a good position to answer. I mean, you um, to have an insight on you, you you kind of crafted this gap gap year in the midst of your university time <laughs> for yourself mm -hmm. in Paris. And um, is there what is the difference, or is there an advantage or disadvantage to to doing what you did, essentially self structuring something mm -hmm. as opposed to joining a program? Uh, like a folk high school or a gap year program of mm -hmm. some kind? Um, absolutely, yes, I would say. I think um, definitely I enjoyed my time in my gap year and, and you know, it was very memorable. Um, you know, I, as I said, I lived at uh, the bookstore Shakespeare and Company um, for a while. <laughs> you um, definitely need to visit the bookstore here okay. in town, which also has some connections to Shakespeare and oh, Company. Oh, really? Oh, fantastic. Yeah, we have people here who, you know, leaders in this community who spent some time out there in that <laughs> okay. same apartment. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> uh, well, I have slept in the loft above the children's section, so that was my bed uh, for a time. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, it was fantastic, but it was also for me, right? Again, this is my own, you know... Uh, kind of experience and, and growth as, a, as an individual, whereas I feel, uh, and even, you know, study abroad programs, things like that, um, can offer that, but the focus school is different because it's about more than just yourself. Um, I think the idea of living in this kind of community um, 
you know, if you go to a summer camp, you know, you can, you can still be on your best behavior for a week, right? <laughs> Maybe two weeks, right? But, you know, slowly over time, like, your real self shows through, right? You can't hide that for four months or six months, you know, or a year. Um, so you have to be real. And, and um, that kind of real vulnerability is so crucial um, because that's where power comes from, yeah. you know, and you have to get to that place. Uh, to really, truly be able to stand on your own two feet and be comfortable in your own skin and, and, um, and to do something for more than just yourself. Um, and I think that is just the amount of joy that that can bring um, for you and for the world is just so much more rewarding. Uh, so I think a school like um, the, uh, IPC or, you know, in Thoreau College is that you are, are starting out, that um, I think the opportunity there is just so vastly more um, than your own kind of yeah. personal travels and backpacking. And that's great, too. Don't get me wrong. You know, I definitely advocate, you know, um, your own soul searching and that sort of thing um, without any sort of uh, agenda or purpose and just kind of go. But there's a time to kind of put that aside and, and, and become part of humanity. That, we are our, our greatest when we work together. And in fact, that is, as an anthropologist, I can say, as this is what it truly means to be human. If you really want to feel it, being in community with others and doing something greater than yourself is, that's where it's at, you know? Um, yeah. Amen. <laughs> that was beautiful. <laughs> I wonder maybe um, to, to, you know, to continue to paint this picture of what life is like there. So this, this third leg, this this participatory governance, citizenship, mm -hmm. you know, living together in practical ways. How does that actually happen at IPC? Um, generally with some sort of breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, we take a bunch of students from all over the world and teachers and just people. And, um, you know, they all have different cultures and different standards and ideas about what's right and what's wrong. And, and it's a, this experiment every single time. And something will break down. As I said before, generally it's with the student kitchen. <laughs> but who right, knows? Maybe, maybe it's with the bike rentals, whatever it is, you know. And meetings have to be had and someone gets fed up and, you know, and they take a stand. They hit the moment where that's too much, and now a town hall has been called, and now, now they start to be active. And for the first month or two, or even more sometimes, it's the motions. They hear it, yeah, 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 we know what this is about, right? right. But it starts to get real around it's month It's the three. fan, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and there's something real that in their community, their life, that needs to be solved. Yep. Um, and that is really special to see, uh, how they come and they start to formulate their opinions and, and work to solve these issues. It's, is yeah, it's always beautiful to me, actually. So, a question that, that that's fascinating, uh, kind of. I, I really uh, am in agreement and, and see that as that that moment, whenever it is, mm -hmm. when the, the crisis happens. <laughs> we don't know exactly what it's going to be, but mm -hmm. it has to happen if the if the real realness is going to happen, mm -hmm. right? The growth is going to happen. Um, so, one thing that um, we're asking here at Thoreau College is when you have a group of students who are just coming together for the mm -hmm. first time, they're here for you know a few months or even for a year, um, but there's not a, 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 a student body that's continuing between year to mm -hmm. year. How, how do those institutions, how do the, the kind of skills of communication, of conflict resolution, of having a meeting, how are those, um, how are those held and how are they, you know, when the crisis happens, mm -hmm. how are they introduced? Um, every time it's a little bit different. Um, there's that flexibility there. I actually teach a class on conflict resolution. And so there's hopefully by that point, some have some skills to deal with that. <laughs> uh, we have a kind of a team norms, community norms meeting at the start about what they want their community to be about. 
But again, until it becomes real, those are just words. Right. And um, and so you know. Um, with the the you know latest issue that happened this term, you know when we talked about oh well this is in the uh, the policy you had at the start of the term, they're like oh we never read that we never this is the first time I'm hearing about that <laughs> okay you know so um, the preparedness you know you can do as much as you want but it really has to come organically through the experience you know and I think as teachers as you know as the the, the staff that kind of create this environment. We have to allow for that moment and be there, not to intervene, but to allow them and, and to provide the, the environment for the students to find their own solutions and find their own empowerment and, and, and work through that as a group um, and as individuals. I think that that is, if we can give them anything, we have to give them that, um, or we fail as teachers, right? If we try to give them the answers and... Um, and it's the guidance. If and if they don't want it from us, then then that's okay too. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's also hard as teachers to step back and um, and al allow them to the space to do it themselves. When you've seen the dishes like <laughs> fight come up again for the hundredth <laughs> time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So as when you're teaching um, conflict resolution, mm -hmm. are there particular modalities or like philosophies that you're working with there? Yeah, we do a lot uh, with uh, Marshall Rosenberg, the nonviolent communication. Um, I also I have a theater background, so I enjoy um, you know theater for conflict transformation or forum theater, um, and I think both are they kind of work well in tandem. Um, and and other things that the students are interested in. Um, Brene Brown often comes up. We you know um, watch you know different TED talks and things. Um, I think Simon Sinek is another. Um, kind of more recent um, philosopher, uh, modern day, you know, kind of looking at some of these issues. Um, it's interesting to know that IPC has a Quaker root somewhere mm -hmm. in there. Do you do work with consensus decision making? We do, yeah, um, absolutely. So, um, well, there is at, at the kind of administrative level, there are certain things that are kind of uh, beyond consensus, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, simply, they have to um, you know, comply with law and right. that sort of thing. But at, um, in every way possible, um, decisions are made um, with, with through consensus, um, particularly term to term. So students, um, the hard part about it, though, is, again, you can't like hold someone's hand and say, okay, well, now you must do this yourself. They have to actually actively mm -hmm. want it, right? So... Um, you know, I had a student or two students this term who there was a holiday from their country that was not observed um, uh, at the school and they were very upset about it and said, hey, you know, this is a peace school and this was, you know, something very important that happened in our country and why aren't you observing it? And I had to say, well, if, if this is something you would like, we absolutely support you, but we will not you know, celebrate the holiday ourselves. We will mm -hmm. not create that as, as an institution. It's whatever you find important, you must, um, you know, uh, embrace and actively create yourself. And they were like, oh, well, this student over here was, you know, celebrating their own holiday or whatever mm -hmm. it is. And uh, it's like, well, that student actually actively requested and, and, and made a, you know, um, uh, active attempts to create that that celebration. And so we supported it and we mm -hmm. will do the same for you. And so that's that's hard. We're, I think we're in many cultures, I know in the United States, we're actually taught to be passive. Mm -hmm. And that's a traditional education system, right? Mm -hmm. This is, you're taught to um, fit into the box, right? Um, and we're actually teaching the opposite. So, mm -hmm. but you can't really guide that, right? That has to be found. Um, and so that's the difficulty, you know, but once students start to catch on to that, then they really, I find, uh, will run with it. 
So. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's something that you know, we observe about our, our programs here, I think that, and we observe in our world, is that it, it is, it seems to be harder and harder for people to have conversations mm. across cultural differences, whether they are international cultural differences or they are, let's say, political mm -hmm. or they are philosophical or ideological. Is that, are you, you know, are you working actively with, with those kind of divisions there? Is that, is there, is there changes over time with that? Or is that like, it seems inherent in bringing a bunch of people in a bunch of countries together? Yeah, absolutely. And actually, and the, the example that I was using, the one student was from Israel and the other student uh, was um, not from Palestine, actually from Afghanistan, but it was uh -huh. um, a kind of religious differences and a, a, from a very sensitive part of the world and um, where they they grabbed onto it and said oh well well if you give attention to this you must give attention to that and um, and so again um, that we do have to you know be very sensitive to those those issues absolutely yeah. um, but again um, giving empowerment and 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 the opportunity um, for students to create their own empowerment is the most important thing yeah. um, Fascinating. Um, so I know, you know an important part of, of life in a community, and I, I know it's an important part of the idea of the folk high schools, are, are forms of, of shared culture, of celebration, of singing. I wonder if you could describe that life of the, of the IPC. Yeah, absolutely. So we um, begin each day with a morning fellowship, um, which is, um, yeah, uh, so it begins with a song, and we do some news, um, and then different uh, kind of programs um, of the day. So maybe by students, maybe by faculty, um, whoever you know has something they want to share. Um, sometimes it's cleaning, uh, so we twice a week have to clean areas of the school. Um, each of the hundred students, they're divided into, at this point, I think nine um, different groups called contact groups. Um, each is with their own teacher, um, and so together, that so it's about ten or eleven students. Um, and they have a different area of the school that they are responsible for. They meet um, and do different activities together. We have something called life stories that we do three mm -hmm. times a term with our contact groups, where the first they talk about their grandparents and their parents. The second, they talk about their own childhood. And the third, their hopes and dreams for the future. And that's, that's a really powerful one um, to go through, you know, um, through the term as they get to know each other. And um, yeah, uh, so that really creates a sense of uh, fellowship. And as I say, f the failescape, right, this community building. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big part of it. And um, we also do washing up after dinner together, after meals. Um, so cleaning is a very big part, working for peace again. Working side by side is very important, um, and different the, activities. The hands, yeah. part of the head mm -hmm. art and hands. There are there other sort of manual or like physical sorts of components of things that every people everyone is doing. Yeah, generally um, during the kind of kind of midterm transition, um, sometimes we'll have students leave halfway after three months, and then new students come in, um, or even just kind of at the midway point in the term um, where we do community work, uh, so chopping firewood or you know weeding gardens or whatever needs to be done at the time, doing a bit more you know extra uh, extra work in that respect. Also at the end of the term. Um, it's not quite as large of a component as it used to be. Apparently mm -hmm. at the start, students were doing five hours a day. Uh, wow. their, their mornings were all about building the school, uh, and their afternoons then they would have lecture and, and study. Um, so yeah. that, that's a fascinating element of this, as mm -hmm. I learned more about the, the, the Danish folk high school mm -hmm. model. Like, so what we're doing here at Thoreau College, mm -hmm. you know, taking our inspiration from Deep Springs, um, labor, is a really important piece. I mean, mm -hmm. it, uh, Deep Springs and, and, and some periods of time here at Thoreau College, there have been something like 
three or four hours a day of labor. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that is, you know, it's, it's one of the kind of the key pillars here. And mm -hmm. it sounds, my, my sense is that that has, was formerly a much more central part of the Danish folk high schools and is in some ways changed over time. Yeah, I think part of it is simply the student body has changed. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said earlier, so um, I think 1928, our students um, students at the college actually built our lecture hall mm -hmm. um, with their own hands, you know, <laughs> and everything with no other outside help. Um, and, and it's still standing up. It's still standing. It's yep. beautiful. <laughs> um, it's still used to this day. Uh, but they also had the skills. Right. I mean, the students coming these days. They're coming off of the farms. Exactly. Yeah, out of the you villages. Know. Yeah. Exactly. And the, the property was much larger at that time. Um, they had bought an old farmhouse, and so there's a big old barn. And um, over the years, some of that property has been sold off um, for various reasons, um, building new buildings and that sort of thing. So I think that's about five acres now, If I mm -hmm. five to ten acres. I can't remember exactly. Um, but it used to be, I think, around 20, 20 acres of land. Wow. Um, so it was a functioning farm to begin with. There were animals, there were horses and cows and all sorts of things, um, and actual farmland that they grew everything themselves. Yeah. So women at the, at the college would be doing a lot more of the kind of the farming or the, or the gardens and, and the cooking, and the men would be building the actual structures and things like that and kind of some more of the manual labor. Um, but yeah, nowadays our students simply don't have those skills. Um, mm -hmm. And in fact, I um, because a lot of the work that I do is with cultural heritage. Uh, we we do exhibitions, and we did an exhibition for the uh, for the jubilee, um, just kind of commemorating the history of the school. Mm -hmm. And many of the students who it was a volunteer project, uh, and so they had a number of students who came to help out, and who had never used a saw. They had uh -huh. never used a hammer. They had, uh, you know, a, a screwdriver. It was I can't tell you how many videos and photos I had to take of people to send to their parents that they painted a wall and they, <laughs> you know, um, it, it, yeah. so just learning how to do those manual things. They, they, you know, they yearn for it. Um, but it's not part of daily life in most cultures anymore. And is it part of the the curriculum or the the? I mean, maybe you could say a bit more about what sorts of subject matters are covered, mm -hmm. uh, are, are, are on offer there. I mean, so you're teaching what sounds like essentially an academic class or you know a social skills class for mm -hmm. the conflict resolution, but yeah. Middle East studies, you know, that that sounds like you could say academic in some sense but mm -hmm. uh, when people in in this in the united states who have heard of folk schools mm -hmm. probably have in mind something that is very like craft oriented mm -hmm. folk arts maybe maybe homesteading skills um is that part of the curriculum there or like what what are some mm -hmm. of the classes that are offered um so actually not so much uh, we do have an arts and crafts class where students can um try different things um but for the most part uh, we do it's it's a mix and uh, we have um the arts we have theater um we also have choir uh, which is very mm -hmm. important um we have um, architecture and design we have a uh, uh, what is it? Tabletop gaming, which is a, a popular class these <laughs> days. Um, podcasting and movie making. Um, a lot of different academic classes. Um, we are an international school, and that is our remit. So um, we have classes called things like Us and Them, um, People mm -hmm. on the Move, uh, mm -hmm. which is a migration class, and um, and other things that I teach as well. Um, outdoor classes, so outdoor life. Uh, something called Friluftsliv um, is outdoor living. Uh, is very, very popular in the Nordic countries. So um, camping and a lot mm -hmm. of camp type activities. Um, gardening, sustainable gardening is another um, development uh, management. So they can learn, um, that's an extended class. 
Um, some other folk high schools have actual core programs, and then you would choose, you know, between let's say four or five or maybe six different core programs, mm -hmm. and then some electives to balance it out. Ours is more of a um, of a general nature, so mm -hmm. it's like a kind of a buffet style. Students can choose whatever mm -hmm. they like, and they simply have to have 28 lessons per week, and uh, you know, certain classes every morning and every afternoon and things like that. Um, but we have also African German dance. What else? Uh, I think 42 or so, right around 40 classes each term. Um, yeah. And they change um, depending on the faculty, but uh, a, a diverse range. Um, My sense is that students are, are keeping their, their week is very full. Mm -hmm. that's, I think as we've, we've um, experimented here at Thoreau College, the schedule actually has been one of the hardest things. Mm -hmm. How, you know, being inspired by Henry David Thoreau, some element of solitude mm -hmm. seems to be important. And how do you do that in the context of intensive community? Um, can you like what is what is a typical day like there for a student? It is pretty intensive, and actually that is something stu our students struggle with. Um, and because we do still have to meet certain legal requirements, um, so the opportunity for solitude is not so um, readily available for some. But we do have a garden, you know, that they can go into um, and, um, and kind of wander about. And we're near the woods as well, so they can get away that way. Um, but yeah, so classes, um, two, um, there's two kind of um, time slots in the morning and two in the afternoon on most days. Um, and then evening activities um, most nights of the week, right? So we have an afternoon fellowship, which is a, a more extended program for community building on Wednesdays. Um, and then uh, maybe there's lectures or maybe there's clubs or different activities, all sorts of things happening um, in, um, during the other weekday evenings, movies and that sort of thing. Um, I think five times a term we have something called a cultural evening. So basically arranged by region. Uh, and so there's maybe 20, 25 students who then work together to put on a cultural evening kind of edutainment uh, mm -hmm. for the others. Um, and so those happen actually quite frequently and they're preparing for that and those activities. So they, they do have quite a bit um, on their yeah. plates. Uh, it is a bit of a whirlwind, but they still have time to have fun, and, <laughs> and, you know, and go travel and that sort of thing. And we try to also work that into the timetable um, and allow for that. Thoreau College is a leader in an emergent movement dedicated to the renewal and revitalization of higher education through the creation of new humanly scaled institutions with holistic curricula known as micro colleges. Thoreau College, higher education for the whole human being. Yeah, we're coming up towards towards the end of our of our time frame here. Um, I wanted to to ask, um, you know, being that you are, you know, you're an anthropologist, you're you're, you're cross cultural, you've lived and taught and worked in different cultures and countries, you've come out of the American education system, um, and I guess if if we um, you know, we're trying to 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 learn from the example of the Danish folk high schools and the IPC, um, what what needs to happen? How could that uh, model be implemented here in the United States? Um, that's a tricky one. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, you know, um, as, they, as they say, you know, the, I think Grunvig who talks about, you know, the fact that the, the folk high school idea is something that's um, eminently exportable but non-translatable, right? <laughs> and what he means, you know, it's something that is very uniquely Danish, right? And Nordic, right? And so also the Nordic. Yeah, there are folk high schools across Scandinavia. Exactly, yeah. right? So it really has taken hold. But the, each of them has their own unique um you know, twist on it, right? Mm -hmm. So I love, for example, in the Swedish uh, folk high schools, they don't have students. They have participants. Uh -huh. 
So just simply having a different name for the, you know, and then in my mind, I thought, well, why, why stop at participant? Why not just talk about community members, mm -hmm. right? That we're all community members, you know, with different roles to play in the community. Um, so I found that <laughs> intriguing, you know, but I think each country, each, you know, individual, um, you know, who wants to start a community like this, a school like this, um, needs to find their own way. I think it has to be organic. It has to fit the time and the place that it's in. Um, and I think it draw from, you know, draw on the, the ideas of Kronvi and, you know, the folk high schools from Denmark, but also the, you know, the native sons as well, you know, um, and other other ideas, you know, and draw liberally, you know, um, if, if there's a good idea that, that works where you are, I think go with it. Um, and I think, yeah, whatever can actually create that empowerment is, is there's no one right way, you know, <laughs> as they'd say in the Vedas. But <laughs> <laughs> there's many paths to truth. <laughs> so fantastic. Um, I guess my, my last question, um, I think this may be circling back to the beginning, mm -hmm. to even, even before you went off to Paris, um, when we were talking here, you, you mentioned an, an important part of your development as a person was was the why in summer camps. Yes. Um, and so there's a way that, that what you're describing at IPC, it sounds like like the most glorious adult summer camp that you can imagine. <laughs> Could you talk about that and, and, and you know, what, what kind of, what the, just the, 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 the sense of fellowship, the sense of atmosphere that's created at a place like, like a summer camp and we're like this, how, yeah, how has that shaped your life? Um, in monumental ways. Um, in ways I think when I was experiencing it, I couldn't um, anticipate or expect uh, very profoundly. Um, so I started uh, actually volunteering at um, a Phantom Lake YMCA camp in McGuanago, Wisconsin, when I was uh, 12 years old. A friend of mine had just read an ad in the paper, and she wanted to do it, but she didn't want to do it alone. So she asked me to join. Uh, I had never heard of the camp. I didn't think much of it. And I was hooked, uh, much as with IPC. As soon as I stepped foot um, in the camp, I just knew that this was a place for me. And in fact, they have uh, in the dining hall a sign that says, uh, sometimes the only way to find out who you really are is to get to a place where you don't have to be anything else. <laughs> and that is um, something that stayed with me all my life. Um, so I started, I volunteered at the day camp uh, for most of my uh, teenage years, and then eventually became um, an actual counselor um, as, when I turned 18. Uh, first day camp, then resident camp. And I think... There is just something magical um, about being with a group of people, particularly in nature, um, and without you know cell phones, without t televisions, without all that distraction, and just being in the presence of others. Um, that is just uh, indescribable. Um, and I think you know that that sense of community is so special. I mean, I just I think everyone should experience it. Um, more than once in their lifetime, again and again, you know, just dip Lifeline. in the pool. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I think coming to, when I finally did eventually uh, uh, arrive at IPC, again, it just, it, it just felt, you know, like home, you know, in many ways, right? It, it was very much in alignment, the philosophy, mm -hmm. the, uh, the ideas behind it, and, and the mode of living um, were very much um, in alignment. Um, and I think that's that's quite a beautiful thing. Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, um, you've been listening to to Microcollege, the podcast. Um, our guest today has been Julie Shackelford, Wisconsin native, um, instructor at the International People's College in Elsinore, Denmark. Um, what what a treat! Um, thank you for stopping by our little town here in Viroqua today. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>